just thank you for this opportunity we have uh, to study uh, together. Uh, thank you, Lord. We pray all this in your son's wonderful and awesome name. Amen. This, if this is your first uh, evening with us, uh, there's a schedule and uh, a uh, fill-in-the-blank note sheet for this week. I do have, if you missed last week, uh, after our session tonight, you can pick up a, f- a filled-out uh, blank sheet from last week. This is the, the lecture from last week, if you missed last time. So, uh, Again, if you're joining us for the first time, we're really basing our study uh, off of Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Uh, I encourage you, if you don't have a, a copy of this text, I uh, encourage you to go ahead and, and uh, get one. It's a, it's a great read, um, great information. As I mentioned last week, uh, there are a few things along the way with Wayne that I have a few exceptions that I might take with him from time to time. Uh, he's just a man like anybody else, and, and uh, so this isn't God's Word, <laughs> right? Uh, God's Word is God's Word, and uh, this is just a, uh, a text to help us study God's Word, if you will. And so it's not, uh, this is not divinely ordained, okay? Uh, so just kind of keep that in mind as we look at it. But anyway, uh, Wayne does a good job. It's very thorough, uh, systematic theology, and uh, I'll be referring to it from time to time. But I'm really using it as a launch pad for our, our study and uh, uh, more than anything else in terms of the scriptures and the, que- the questions that we're asking, the, sc- the scriptures that we're uh, utilizing to answer the questions that we're uh, looking at. So tonight we have two major things we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the Word of God and the canon of Scripture. And so to start unpacking things, uh, one of the questions in terms of the Word of God we might ask here are, are what are the different forms of the Word of God? And one of the first things that jump, jumps out at us is this idea, uh, especially from the New Testament, the Word of God as a person, i.e. Jesus Christ. Uh, where do we get that idea from, this idea that Jesus Christ, the Christ, is actually, in fact, the Word of God? Where does that idea come from, would you say? John what? John 1.1. John 1.1 in particular, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, the Greek word that's used here is logos. And uh, by way of reminder, uh, this text is uh, an incredible text. Let me pull this up here. First we have Revelation 19.13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. I'd like to remind you, uh, the word here for word in the book of Revelation here is logos. I'd also like to remind you it's John who wrote this in Revelation, as well as this passage, John 1.1, that we're referring to. So several places uh, we see John, the apostle, referring to Jesus as the Lagos. Uh, I'd like to remind you in John 1.1 that this phrase here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This particular phrase is an incredibly relevant statement about who Christ is. It's a culturally relevant statement uh, in no uncertain terms. What am I getting at? When John starts his gospel, uh, he's trying to reach the world with the truth of the gospel. He's trying to reach the world with the truth of who Jesus is. And to do so, he's got to grab everybody's attention. 
Well, how does he do that? Well, he uses a very he uses two phrases here, and the first one's pretty obvious, in the beginning. Well, the minute he uses the phrase in the beginning, every Jew is going, huh? Why? Because that's the first three words from what? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So every Jew is now listening with intent because they're expecting to hear, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then John tweaks it with a second phrase. In the beginning was the word. And with this phrase logos, he's now arrested the attention of all the Greeks. How so? Well, logos, for all the Greeks, that is the word that behind it has the meaning. It's the meaning and reason behind all things. That's what logos means. The word. That's where we get the logic, logistics. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible word that all the Greeks would go, oh, so that's what was in the beginning. Or better, that's who was in the beginning. Because we find out later in 14, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we immediately go, oh, well, that's Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus is God. Incredible statement putting forward the deity of Christ. Okay? So in just one verse, John rocks the whole world. All the Jews are listening, all the Greeks are listening. By the way, it's important as we do ministry that we too need to be culturally relevant. Right? We need to make sure that we're communicating in a way that communicates the gospel in a way that people in a particular culture can understand it. This is huge. Now, let's just take, for example, some cultural things that we're familiar with. Even the, the old King James was written in a very culturally relevant way. How so? What do you mean? Well, they, they use the word God. Even the Bible, our English translation, do you understand how culturally relevant that is? Why aren't they using theos and Elohim and Yahweh? That's, what, that's really what's in the, the Greek and Hebrew text. But no, we use the word God because it's culturally relevant. Because when we hear the name God, or back in the day when it was first being used by way of translations into English from you know, the Greek and the Hebrew, and in particular with the King James Version, the Latin Vulgate, they used God because that was the being that represented the creator deity. God. Gott from the old German. Okay, So... It's important that as we communicate the gospel that we find ways to communicate it in relevant ways. And uh, this, this is no exception here with what we have by way of John's words here to the Jews and the Greeks and also what we have with our own English translations. So the word of God is a person. Um, so this is huge. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So... In a way, whenever God speaks, who's speaking? Jesus. You know, sometimes we get the question of, you know, we talk about the Trinity, but I really don't see the Trinity, you know, in the Old Testament very much. And I'd like to say, well, wait a minute. 
Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Verse 2 says, and what? The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And in chapter 3, we hear, and God said, let there be light. So when God speaks, who's speaking? Jesus. Matter of fact, we have several passages in Scripture that, matter of fact, later on in John, we find out it's Jesus who actually is the creator. By him, all things came to be. Hebrews chapter 1 also talks about Jesus being the creator. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, again, over and over again, we see that Christ is the creator. And so here in Genesis 1, we see the same thing. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son, they're all represented right in the first three verses of Genesis. And matter of fact, the word Elohim that's translated in our English God, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, it's in the plural. Elohim. Whenever you have an im on the end of a Hebrew word, it's plural. But interestingly, bara, create, is in singular. So it's either really bad Hebrew grammar or really awesome theology. And we go with it's awesome theology. Okay? So this is a huge statement. And, of course, as we study, as we unpack scriptures, this is the first, probably the most important idea we should uh, get around our minds here in terms of Jesus being, in fact, the very word of God. Secondly, the word of God as speech by God. When God says something, right? First of all, here we have God's decrees, where God has decreed things. He's made statements that we have to deal with, like Genesis 1-3. What we have here is creation by what's known as fiat, where God says something and it comes to be. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I would love to see the special effect on that. That would have been cool. Right? Or like Genesis 1.24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth and according to their kinds. Look, and it was so. Notice when he decrees something, boom, it's happening. Why? Because it's God's word. Oh. God's word does things. I want you to think about that for a second. God's word has power to do things. By the way, what makes it God's word is the very fact that it does have power to do things. And the reason it has power to do things is precisely the fact that it is God's word. Things go together. Okay? I, we could just we could just kind of worship with that for a while tonight. But when he speaks, he means business. Those promises that he's made to you, he's not kidding around. It's all true. His word has power to make all the difference. Let there be light. Boom, there was light. Hey, let the earth do this. Boom, and it was so. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Did you hear that? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth, all their host. You know what the ho- That's all the stars. Do you realize how many stars there are? Here's God. <gasps> Everything. Man, 
That's power. It's his decrees. Further, Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. This is a passage I referred to a few moments ago. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I'd like, you know, again, this is another statement talking about the deity of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. He is, who we, who's the he here? It's Jesus. Matter of fact, Hebrews 1, the whole uh, first discussion point in the chapter 1 of Hebrews is Jesus is better than anybody. He's better than angels. He's better than the priests. Better than, better than uh, Abraham, Aaron. He's better than all those guys. Why? Well, look. He's the radiance of the glory of God. That's who he is. And the exact imprint of his nature. Well, how close is exact? <laughs> I mean, we're saying he's God. He's divine. And he upholds the universe. How? By the word of his power. Do you realize the only reason the universe is still what it is, is only by God's Word. And all he has to do is speak otherwise, and it's not. Oh. <laughs> this is who, I'd like to remind you we're dealing with God here. God Almighty. He speaks it, and it is so. The Word of His power. God's Word has power to do things. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Secondly, God's words of personal address. Sometimes he speaks personally to people. Really? The Lord God, in chapter 2 of Genesis, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He spoke directly to, to Adam. This is the way it is. Deal with it. Oh, by the way, how much freedom do Adam and Eve have in the garden? A lot. Just don't eat of the one tree. How awesome is that? Exodus 21 through 3, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the preamble to the Ten Commandments as he speaks personally to the nation of Israel. By the way, this event was so, such a calamity for the nation of Israel that later God comes to speak to Israel again and the Israelites say, hey, Moses, don't, let's not do that again because that was really, we didn't enjoy the last time. Can you, like, can you just talk to him because... It's too powerful. It's too overwhelming. I'm the Lord your God. Matthew 3.17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What was going on here? Pardon? Yeah, whose? Jesus' baptism. Who speaks? God. Voice from heaven. <laughs> this is my beloved son. To the hearer, these were the very words of God, and therefore they were completely authoritative and trustworthy. And they should be for us too, right? 
The words were human words in ordinary language and therefore immediately understandable. In other words, God's not trying to communicate to us in some sort of way that's unintelligible. God's not trying to hide truth from us. He's not playing a shell game with us. So when he's speaking these words to these people, they are clearly able to understand it. Thirdly, words from God always place an absolute obligation upon the hearers to believe them and to obey them fully. And by the way, to disbelieve or disobey any part of them, any part of what God has said, is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. That's why the root word, like in uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. He's one. The word hear is the Hebrew word shema. And you can easily translate hear in Hebrew with the word obey. Obey, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In other words, from the Hebrew mindset, if you're hearing it, you ought to be about doing it. See, we've got this Western cultural criticism idea where, well, I want to hear it, I'm going to assess it, and then maybe I might do it. I want to make sure it's what I want to hear. And if it's really something I want to be about. Whereas for the Jews, no, if, you're, if it's God speaking, you're hearing it, we ought to be about doing it. And maybe we should hurry up about it. Okay? Thirdly here, God's words as speech through human lips, i.e. the prophet's. Sometimes God speaks through prophets to us. Like Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, we've got a specific uh, prophecy here in Deuteronomy. Let's go ahead and look it up. <coughs> and uh, there's, again, as with most prophecies, there's an immediate context and there's a future context that we have to unpack. So as Moses writes this in chapter 18, let's back up a little bit to verse 15. Chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Who's he talking about? Jesus, okay? By the way, we get that confirmed uh, in the New Testament by books like the Gospel of John. It goes on to say, Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire uh, anymore lest I die. Remember, that's, I just referred to that a moment ago. We don't want to experience that anymore. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So let's stop there for a second. Again, who are we referring to specifically here? Jesus. So this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. 
But the same token, there's an immediate context where the hearers of this passage in the giving of the second law, Deuteronomy, Deutero, second, namas, where you get onomy, <laughs> namas, that's the law, the second issuance of the law as the nation of Israel is getting ready to go into the promised land. There's an immediate context that's a discussion about prophets from God and what you should do with them. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, by the way, would, this, is, this is how we know it's not messianic now because would Jesus ever say anything that contrary to what God... No. So now we've got a little tutorial... We spoke prophetically about a coming prophet, but by the way, let's talk about prophets for a second. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Uh, why? <laughs> because you should probably stone him. <laughs> he should be put to death. This is why I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not a prophet. I'm just going to be going record. Not a prophet. Don't feel like getting a rock to the head today. All right? So, there are words that are going to come from God to men, as we're going to see later, men moved by the Spirit of God who are speaking on God's behalf. Jeremiah 1.9, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, Jeremiah writes. Jeremiah, the great prophet. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. Wow, bam, there it is. Right? I don't know about you, but that's, that'd be pretty overwhelming. Exodus 4.12, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Who's being spoken of here? Try again. Who? We're in Exodus. It's got to be Moses. As Moses is being told by God to go to the Egyptians, Now therefore go, Mo, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Remember, Moses tries to get out of it. I'm really not very good at that. That's not my thing. He kind of bails. So then uh, the agreement is, okay, we'll let Aaron do that. And so, Moses, you'll be like God, and you're going you're gonna to put words into Aaron's mouth, okay? And Aaron will be like Moses, and, I'll, and you'll be like God, and we're just going to change that a little bit. Isn't it awesome of God to accommodate us in our ridiculousness? <laughs> so incredibly gracious. Of course, there's the issue of false prophets that we already talked about in Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. So be careful with that. Okay? <coughs> Fourthly, God's words in written form, the Bible. Okay, so Jesus is the word, Right? We've talked about God actually speaking to individuals or people groups. And we just talked about prophets who've spoken from God. And now we're looking at God's words in written form, i.e. the Bible. 
But what evidence do we have for that possibility? From Exodus 31, 18, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. By the way, here's a, a fun question to ask people, a little trivia. Well, what, uh, what was the first thing ever written in the Bible? A lot of people will say, what? Genesis, maybe Job. It's Ten Commandments. <laughs> this is the first thing written down, guys. Right? And, and, and who wrote it? God, with the, the finger of God. Who is Christ? Yes, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay? That's so cool. You know, I... You know, I wasn't there, but I think the special effects in the Ten Commandments movie, that's pretty close. <laughs> I'm hoping it was that way, you know. It's really cool looking. Exodus 32, 16. The tablets were the work of God, we're told. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. You know them, don't you? You know, you, you've got them memorized. Scripture says all over the place that we should be meditating on the law of God. In the Hebrew, the word is the Torah of God. In particular, the law of the Ten Words. Are you meditating? Well, for us to meditate on it, we'd have to know it. I was teaching a a class at a Christian college on biblical ethics, and um, none of the students knew any of the Ten Commandments. It was horrible. I'm like, you're kidding me. I actually, I kept putting it on the quiz until they uh, get it right. <laughs> you keep asking us. Yeah, well, you keep missing it, so let's get it. It's a class on ethics. You should probably know what God says about the law. Deuteronomy 31, let's take a look. A few pages over from 18. 31.9. What does it say? Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the set time in the year of release at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner, that's the visitor, within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So there's the admonition, there's the call to the reading, listening, hearing God's word as written. Joshua 24, 26, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Isaiah 30, and now go, write it before them on a tablet, inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Are you hearing that? Whatever Isaiah is going to do, he's got to write it down in such a way that it becomes a witness for all time. 
Don't forget, I just read this verse. Don't forget, I just read this to you. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Wow. Jeremiah 32, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. And so he did. John 14, 26, but the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And now we're into the New Testament. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives the words to the apostles as they write the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. In other words, if you have any spiritual insight, you should understand as you're reading what I'm writing to you, it should resonate with you spiritually. In other words, it shouldn't be contradictory to what you're hearing because it's God's word. You go, oh. So what are the benefits? What do you think? Without looking at your paper that's got a few blanks almost filled in. What would be, what was God thinking in putting his word in print? Why is that a good thing? Okay, so it could be taught. Okay. We have something to look at that's authoritative to refer to. What else could you say? Okay. We have an accurate account as to what was said, what happened historically. What else could you say? Yeah. We should be able, it should be something, a, a record that we can look at from generation to generation to help guide us towards what is true. Wayne Grudem puts it this way. It gives us a more accurate preservation. Ever play the telephone game? You know, we could start uh, down on this end with Jen, and she could whisper something in Frank's ear and Frank to Ray and so on, all the way down. And uh, whatever the phrase is that she starts with, it's probably going to be a little bit different when it gets to the end. Why? Because that's how that happens uh, when we communicate orally. So once I write it down, now I've got a written record that all of us can refer to and have access to. Uh, and nobody has to argue about it, what was said or, or not. Well, here it is. It's in print. And by the way, that's why you should be really careful with what you text to people or email them, right? <laughs> Never come back to bite you, has it? Uh, shouldn't have put that down in print. Crap. So it gives us a more accurate preservation. Secondly, an opportunity for repeated inspection. Well, what, what did it say? Oh, I got, let's go back and look at that. What, what was that? Oh, yeah, he said that. That's what he said. So this is the meaning of that. That's what that refers to. And so I can go back. Thirdly here, it gives more accessibility to many more people, doesn't it? especially with the invention of the printing press, boom. We can print 
buckets of this. Take it all over the world. Was it two summers ago, Abby, my daughter, my middle daughter, who's getting married in July, she uh, was on a missions trip um, in Peru, in the mountains of Peru, taking the Bible in the indigenous language of the Peruvians up in the mountains, and they were taking Bibles to them. They had had Bibles in other languages, but they hadn't had it in their own tongue. And now they're going to have it. And, you know, there's a lot of rejoicing and celebration as she went from town to town with her team, taking just a Bible. Hmm. How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, Scripture says, right? What a cool thing. Make it more accessible. Okay. Any questions with what we've looked at so far? Yeah. Looking for a Bible with like really late history, where did things get encountered from? Well, we had Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Okay. Uh, and so, and, you know, various translations, but for the most part, the, the, the scholars would have had to refer to the Greek text. And not only that, they would have, as I'll refer to in a few minutes, they would have had to refer, for the most part, in the known world there uh, with the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, uh, there was a time where the known world really wasn't re really referring to the Hebrew texts. They were just going with the Greek because that's what was accessible and that's what everybody could read uh, for quite some time. Well, the, you, we're gonna, I'm going to demonstrate for you in just a few moments uh, where we can find access to, to all this stuff, all the evidence. So stay tuned. Let's do a question. Okay? And, it, and you're going to, it's quite remarkable. So. All right. Uh, any other questions? All right. Well, the focus of our study through a course in systematic theology is precisely God's written word. The focus of our study in systematic theology is God's word in written form. That is the Bible. Okay, this is, this is going to be the foundation for everything we discuss by way of different doctrines that we examine. Whether it's uh, Christology, we study the doctrine of Christ. Uh, pneumology, we study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, Hamar theology, the, the study of sin. Uh, any doctrine we want to examine, we're going to use Scripture to shape what we know uh, for understanding. Okay. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is where we need to go. This is, in terms of our understanding what truth is, we have to go back to the text. I, I'm more concerned when the person says, well, God told me, blah, 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 blah. I'm going, really? Really? God told you something? You're kind of scaring me a little bit. <laughs> Are you a prophet? Do I need to get a rock? I'd much rather hear, you know, I was reading God's Word and God showed me this, you know, in what He says in His Word. 
I'd feel a lot better about that. I don't know if you would, I would. Okay. Joshua 1 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. There it is again. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I don't know about you, but I'm longing for a success. I'm longing for a, a prosperous way. I'm not looking for a Lamborghini. I don't think that's what that's about. We're talking about finding our life. Not finding worldly riches. So in terms of an explanation and a scriptural basis here, we move to a discussion on the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture is the list of all the books that belong in the Bible. The question here is, how did we decide what books get to be in the Bible or not? What's the criteria? What's the determination? Who says? Who says that Hosea gets in? Who says that James is something that should be in the Bible? Matter of fact, there's some who didn't think James should be in there at all. Others said, no, it should be. Well, how do we know? And why is this so important? Well, Moses reminds us with what he wrote in Deuteronomy 32.45, in terms of the importance of God's word to us, it is your life. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the only way we know that He is our Savior, that we know that He's our Lord, that He's anything, is only by His Word. And so if I don't have access to God's Word, I can't have access to Christ. This is my life. Is it yours? Man, I hope it is. I can't get away from this book. can't. And I can't, I can't not do what I'm doing about it and with it in terms of what I'm doing. If, if you can, you're a senior pastor, I'm just going to go somewhere else and do this. I don't care. You're not going to stop me. <laughs> this is who I am. This is what I do. This is my life. Why? Because this book is life to me. It's brought me life. It's brought my family life. Why? Because it's truth. Truth is where life is found. Things that are false, I don't have anything to do with. I don't want to have anything to do with that which isn't true. We talked about last week, uh, R.C. Sproul put it this way, that truth is that which is real. So if it's real, it must be what's true. Man, I, man, that's where I want to go. That's, that's where I want to live my life. I, I hope that's the case for you. You know, Scripture talks about itself, you know, we need to, we need to eat it. <laughs> we need to eat his word. We should be dining on this. Man does not live on what? Bread alone, but on 
the word of God. Oh, so this is what matters? Yes. This is what keeps my way? Absolutely. Even when everything's going the wrong way, this is what shows me the way. Why? Because it points me to who? Christ, who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, we need to be careful here. Am I saying that God's word is somehow divine and we really have a quadrinity? <laughs> do, we, do we have a fourth deity by way of the written scripture? No. We're not, we're not, I'm not talking about worshiping the text. We're worshiping the God of the text that the text points us to. So should I have a reverence and appreciation and awe about God's word? Yes. Should I be actually worshiping the book? Probably not. So let's make sure we get that straight. We're not Bible worshipers. We are God-fearers, God-worshipers. And it's His Word that points him, points us to Him. It's our life. Okay? Does that make sense? Everybody with me? All right. Story 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. There's enough with what we need to deal with with what's written right here. <laughs> you don't need to add more stuff. I always get really concerned about people who want to, they read it and then they go, well, this is what I think it really says. And they start creating a whole other storyline. I'm like, wait a minute, it's not, that's not there. Can't we just deal with what's there? That's enough. That's probably sufficient. And so people come out with crazy books. What was the one book? Um, the Bible Code. Does anybody remember the Bible Code about 20-some years ago they came out with? The Bible Code was this thing where they took uh, the Hebrew and the Greek uh, and they did random searches like every seventh letter in the Hebrew. And then see if they could find messages in it. Ladies and gentlemen, you could do that with an encyclopedia and get the same results, I'm telling you. Or a dictionary. Enough, ran, enough random pros, chance. You're, you're going to come up with something. And you're going to go, see, there's a message in there. There's more. Does God ever say to do that with this book? No. Let's not be doing it then. Let's stick with what the text says. There's enough for us to deal with right here without our adding to it or taking away from it. Is it Thomas Jefferson? He didn't like God's Word. So he took scissors and he, he cut out stuff he didn't like. Oops. That's convenient. I guess he gets to be divine, right? It's Thomas Jefferson's Word. It's not really God's anymore, now is it? Don't add, don't take away. There's enough to deal with with what we have. So the Old Testament canon. When I say canon, what we're referring to here by way of this particular word, uh, what's the measuring stick? What's the criteria that we use to determine whether a book gets in the Old Testament or in a moment we'll see the New Testament? How do we make those kind of determinations? And how, how can we know with any certainty or any reliability what, this, what the story is? So... So canon literally means measuring stick, measuring reed. 
what is the Old Testament criteria? Exodus 31, 18, it says, And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets, the testimony tablets of stone written in the finger of God, as we already saw, right? Deuteronomy 31, let's take a look once more. As it said in verse 24, 31, 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the, of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Man, it's like he knows us. <laughs> Behold, even today while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? There's a great question. Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak to these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Okay? Uh, this is huge. So Moses was called to write it down, stick it in the Ark of the Covenant. Joshua 24, 26, and Joshua wrote these books. 1 Samuel 10, 25, 1 Chronicles 29. 2 Chronicles 20, Chronicles 26, 2 Chronicles 32, Jeremiah 30. Over and over again, we're told, write this down, write this down, write this down. Put it in a book. This is what God has commanded. And so they did. As we look at the Old Testament timeline, we start scrutinizing how the text comes to be. I have to be honest with you, as I first started looking at this by what's known as textual criticism, I had some concerns. Dates for Haggai, around 520 B.C., Zechariah, 520, 518 B.C., Malachi, 435, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, 458-433, nothing more after 435 B.C., Prior to that, some of the writings would have dated back to 1500 B.C. or so. Some to a thousand, like the time of David. So the oldest complete manuscript that we have at hand that you can go look at on the planet right now includes Genesis to Malachi. Written 1000 A.D. It's the Leningrad Codex in Hebrew, also known as the Masoretic Text. In terms of this Hebrew text, it's known as a pointed text. What I mean by that is that the ancient Hebrew language doesn't have any vowels. <laughs> Oops. How do you say such? How do you know how to say it? Well, the Masoretes, who were a group of Hebrew scholars, pointed the text, in other words, put little dots around the consonants of the Hebrew to give the traditional pronunciation of the word so that the pronunciation and therefore meaning wouldn't be lost over time. Okay. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, when I first saw this, I, my mouth kind of dropped. And I was kind of like, really? 
the oldest complete text of the Old Testament only goes back to 1000 A.D. Anno Domini, that's a thousand years after Jesus, roughly. Guys, that's not all that old. And I was like, that's not very good. That's a problem. Because some of the texts, as I just said a moment ago, date back to B.C., and we don't have, any, we don't have much of anything prior to that. Well, we do have some good news. There is a text that dates back to around 200 B.C., the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation from the 70 scholars in Alexandria, in Egypt. The good news is we have a translation of the Hebrew text, but the problem is we don't have the Hebrew text that they use to translate from. We don't know where it is. We've got some portions of it, but we don't have the whole thing. This dates back about 200 years before Jesus. It's in Greek, not Hebrew. So I can read the Masoretic text, and if I'm not sure about something, I can go look at the Greek and go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. But again, with translation, there's always a little bit of something lost. What do I mean by that? A little bit of something lost in translation. No. So let me give you an example. The New Testament, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, and he's talking to Peter, and he says to Peter, after further, you know, previous discussion, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? We've read that many times. We've heard it, right? But with a little more context, there's some more information going on here because it just so happens in Caesarea Philippi, there's a pagan temple devoted to the god, the Greek god Pan. And the name of this particular pagan temple is known as the Gates of Hades. <laughs> so when Jesus is talking to Pete, hey, Pete, uh, you are Peter, and, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the Gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You just point down the street. And all of a sudden, we've got more context, more meaning. We go, wow. And all the people hearing Jesus say that go, Wow. Because that was a very revered site and thousands came and worshipped there. He's saying something pretty massive to Peter about what's going to happen to that place. Oh, by the way, I saw the place. I've been there. And um, uh, it's in ruins. <laughs> Apparently it didn't prevail, right? The church did. Okay, Again, what, God said, what Jesus says is going to be the way it is. So something was lost. It's a little lost in translation because we don't have the full context. So similarly, even though we have Greek here, which is great, but there's a potential for some of the nuances of the Hebrew to be lost. When, when God gets angry, in Hebrew, literally, it says he got big of nose. <laughs> His nostrils flared. Oh, okay, yeah. 
that's big enough. You, you, how do you translate that, you know, in the way that we understand and get? All right? So we got a problem. But God did something cool. What did he do? Dead Sea Scrolls. Late 1940s, really cool thing happened. Uh, there were some kids who were playing in some dry riverbeds uh, near the Dead Sea. And there were some caves up um, on these cliffs. And as kids do with caves and a lot of rocks laying around, what are they going to do? <laughs> Hold rocks up in the cave and see if you, who can get one in, right? So they're throwing rocks into the cave way up there. As they're throwing rocks, you know, when you throw a rock, you usually hear, when it lands, you hear rockety rock noise, right? I don't know what that is. <laughs> right? But as they're throwing rocks up there, they didn't hear rockety rock noise. They heard clankety clank noises. And they're like, something's up there. So these kids climbed up there and found some urns that looked like this. This is a facsimile, and it's a micro-facsimile. The actual urn would, from the table, be about this tall. And inside, they found scrolls like this one. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the whole book of Isaiah right there. Okay, whole scrolls. Of course, there were many of the urns that had been broken over the years. And uh, many of the scrolls, re what remained, had an amazing amount of bat dung on them. But some of them were entirely intact, like that. And... Uh, so they climbed up there and they, you know, brought one of these scrolls down and they took it to their parents. Their parents like, you know, they don't know what this is. And they take it to the local market and, you know, it gets sold at a market, you know, some antiquity thing and somebody buys it. And, and it ends up uh, with some guy selling it um, and somebody lists it in uh, uh, ancient manuscripts in a New York newspaper. And a guy called on it, checked it out, went and bought it. And when he saw what it was, said, where did you get this? And they traced it all the way back to these kids, back to these caves in Qumran, and found a whole bunch more. And to this day, there are archaeologists who are still piecing together these scrolls that many of them are disintegrated and, and trashed. Um, but what's amazing about this, i got to click my clicker to get to this. These date back about a, a hundred A.D. or so. Written down by a group of Jews known as the Essenes, who were very fastidious Jews, very interested in purity and washing. Matter of fact, in Qumran, where these are found in the area, uh, where this little civilization was near the time of Christ, they found more bathing pools with this group of Jews than anywhere in the world. They were very 
traditional, very, if you will, legalistically inclined people. Known as the BSS. And so now we've got an ability to compare the Leningrad Codex with a text about a thousand years prior. Oh, and by the way, they found everything from Genesis to Malachi. Um, there's portions of, of uh, Daniel that are missing and uh, I think the book of Esther. But for the most part, everything else was in. And so they can make a comparison now. They can compare the Masoretic text that they have to a text a thousand years earlier. And you know what they found? I love it when people say that because it just plays right into my thing. No, they found differences. The question is, what kind of differences did they find? Were there errors? There were scrupful errors. But what they didn't find is that there was no manipulation. There was no rewrites. There was no revisions. What they found was precisely scribal errors. And that's really all they found, which makes sense. So Josh, you know, I could say to Josh here, hey, Josh, open your, pa your pad of paper here and, and turn to the book of John, and let's take all the chapter headings out and all the verses out, and I want you to start writing the, the Gospel of John on your pad of paper. Keep writing. Well, sometime later tonight, John's going to want to go home, Josh is going to want to go home, or he's going to, you know, go to the rest. He's going to leave his work for a minute, and he's going to come back. And when he comes back, what happens if he ends on the word the when he leaves the text, and he comes back and he grabs a the further down in the text and starts writing? He's going to gloss over something, right? There might be a, something missed. That's an easy error to make. We, we make mistakes like that. Or it's possible, oh, I just totally blew my cover there. <laughs> it's possible that he might grab a the further up in the text and rewrite something and have what's known as an amendation, where uh, there's a little bit of a repeat in the text. But what we're not seeing is revision. We're not seeing a changed storyline. It's the kind of things you expect to find when people... Human beings are sitting down writing something over again for a long, long period of time. Now, by the way, why would the Essenes be so careful about this? Remember, what, I, what I just tell you about them. They're very fastidious, very careful. This is God's word. Do they want to mess with it? No. That's the last thing they want to do. And so I'm sure if somebody found out that they missed something or they added something, they'd feel horrible. Okay. Once in a while, in terms of what they finally run into a situation like this in English, you know, where a, a letter's missing. And now, you know, we're like, well, what is it? Is it O or I? Is it love or live? Well, we could go to the Greek text, the Septuagint, and look at that and see, oh, it's the word agape there. That's how it translated previously. Oh, well, clearly this agape, that's love. It's got to be an S. 
So that actually brings more confirmation in terms of what's there as opposed to what's not there by way of having access to even another translation. In other words, what are we getting at here? How, how reliable are these texts, you guys? The Old Testament texts are incredibly, incredibly reliable. A thousand years went by with no major revisions. But you watch, you know, like the you know, PBS and this Bible story, you know, and they'll say, oh, and they'll make up all kinds of crazy stuff that just isn't so about how unreliable the text is when the exact opposite is true. Do the research yourself. Find a good book on textual criticism and look at it. And by the way, there's more data that we have out there. It's this partial data that supports these Hebrew texts. So these scrolls, something like this. You've got your pointer. You you never, never touch the the text with your finger because you've got oil in your fingers, and that would affect the the nature of the material that text is on. So you, you use the pointer. It's, it's actually got a little hand on it. All of them here. Every one of them different. It's kind of cool. Okay, it's kind of creepy. Your hand. Okay, and then uh, the shield here. <coughs> And on top of the text, you've got these, these crowns, kind of giving, if you will, the royalty, if you will, the text that's from God, king of the universe. And this is actually, uh, this is the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Torah scroll. Isn't that cool? It looks like a, a chicken went crazy on an ink blotter. These are the Hebrew texts. Look at that after class. Nowadays, we have a book that looks like this. And you're going, why are you holding the book to me backwards? No, I'm not. This is Hebrew. It's written the other way. You go from left to right. They go right to left. I'm pretty sure the first guy writing Hebrew was left-handed. That's my guess. Um, so when you open it up, what do you expect to find? You expect to find the very beginning. You open it up. Here's... Open it up and you come. What should I find? What should I find at the beginning? Genesis. There it is. Genesis. Looks like I'm at the back of the book. I'm at the front. Maybe all your books are backwards. This one's right. Where it reads, Bereshith bara Elohim, Eith Hashemayim, Eith Haaretz. Do you know what that means? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's exactly what it says. You really can't translate it any other way. Because that's what's here. Be is in. That's a preposition. Reshif actually means the, the head of the animal. So at the head of the animal, at the very beginning, bara Elohim, they have a reverse order. They go verb-subject. We always have subject-verb, right? The puppy vomited on the rug. Right? <laughs> so, so puppy, subject But they go, they, they would say vomited, the puppy on the rug. Uh, so, sorry for the gross, but you get it. You understand what I'm talking about. So, Bara Elohim, Elohim, God, God created. By the way, Bara in Hebrew, only God can bara. Only God can create out of nothing all that there is. Man, later we'll talk about Yatsar. Man can fashion, but he's using God's material to fashion something. But only God bara. I mean, that's how accurate the text is. Eighth is a, is a direct object marker telling me what he created now. 
Hath is a definite article. This is how precise language is. It's a definite article telling me it's the. The what? The Shemayim, the heavens. The Shemayim. The Shemayim, Ayim, that's in the dual. In Hebrew, there's singular, there's plural, there's dual. We only have singular and plural, but they have dual. So if I say Yad, that's a hand. Yadim, whole bunch of hands. Yadayim, two hands. Sus, that's horse. Susim, whole bunch of horses. Susayim, two horses. Okay? So the heavens. So why is the heavens in the dual? Why is that? Because in the Old Testament, when the heavens are referred to, it's two places. It's either where the birds are or where the stars are. You'd agree with me that birds aren't where the stars are and the stars aren't where the birds are, right? You agree with me, right? So there's a dual nature. So you see how accurate the language is? Matter of fact, in the New Testament, we're told that there was a guy who was called up to where? Third heaven. Well, where's that? Well, that's the throne room of God, right? That's beyond the physical. The dual nature. It's the tip of the hat to the Hebrew. You go, oh, there it is again. The eighth Hashemayim, the, the earth. I mean, it's specifically the heavens. By the way, the, the King James Version is wrong. It has, it has heavens in the singular when it's in dual. So that's, people say, the King James, that's the only translation. No, it's, it's verse one's wrong. <laughs> Sorry, it's plural. Oops. It's in the dual. So the heavens and the earth, specifically. There's, there's really no other way to translate that. I'm sorry. This is what it says. Isn't that fun? It's God's word. Okay? So, so I don't know. Has your confidence been built up about the Old Testament? Are you feeling good about it? We have a thousand years differential between these texts to compare, and we're not seeing somebody revising it, changing it, manipulating it. That's, that's incredible. If that's the case, we can rest in the uh, an assurance and reliability of our Old Testament text. Any questions on the Old Testament before we jump into the New Testament? Yeah. Here's my critical assessment of the Septuagint. Are you ready? I think the Septuagint is highly manipulated. The Greek translation here, well, wherever it was, um, I, I think this is highly nuanced. And I've got other, I've got other data. I wrote some papers uh, collegiately, I should say, master's level. Uh, about that. <laughs> I had one I submitted, the professor's like, can I have this? Uh, yeah, you can. Um, because there's some pretty unflattering situations um, that show up in the Septuagint. So, um, again, is it flat out completely all messed up? No. But I'm more enamored by this dynamic than I am by the Greek translation. This is, this is incredible. 
Good question. Anything else? Yes, sir. Here's one issue. One of the issues uh, that we run into is this account about Hiram and Solomon. Again, this is just an example. Hiram and Solomon. Well, who's Hiram? Hiram is the king of Tyre who supposedly Ezekiel 28 is about. Which is also an allusion to a, r- a reference to the evil one. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> it's a pretty inflammatory text. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 are prophecies that really refer to the devil. Um, that was free, there's no charge for that. But because of that text, the, there's got to be an original metaphoric key that unpacks that. <laughs> and um, it, with some of the language that's in there, what's, what's strange is in the, in the documents of the Kings and the Chronicles, uh, there is an allusion to the idea that Hiram anointed Solomon as king. If you're a good Jew, that's a real problem because a pagan king anointed Solomon as king. Oops. And there seems to be some sort of a manipulation to try to make that go away. Okay, so there's, a, there's one example of uh, a revision that the Jews might have liked to not be there if, in fact, Hiram actually did anoint Solomon king. Okay. So that's one example of something like that. Another one, obviously, would be you know, with a, a text where there seems to be an embellishment uh, in Jeremiah. But, again, going back to this idea to have so much continuity here between these two works is amazing. Okay? Good. Now, let's go to the New Testament because time is of the essence, and this is going to be awesome. Don't miss this. Okay, we did that. We did that. Okay. Oh, what about those intertestamentary works, the Apocrypha? Or the what's pseudopigrapha? There's a great word, pseudopigrapha, pseudo fake pigrapha writings. What about those? Like you know, Gospel of Thomas and things like that. Uh, first and second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Barak or uh, Baruch, the Song of the Three, ho- the, the Song of the Three Holy Children, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manasseh, and First and Second Maccabees. These will show up in your Catholic Bible, but the, ref- the Reformers, um, uh, those who protest the Catholic Church, those Protestants, uh, have rejected this. And the question is, on what grounds were these texts rejected? These are known as intertestamentary, intertest- intertestamental, that's a good word, we'll just go with that, intertestamental texts. They were written between the Old and New Testament. That's what I'm trying to say. So with these works, why are they not included in our Bible? Why were they rejected? Four criteria here. One, the Jews rejected them as Scripture. In other words, the Jews only hold to Genesis to Malachi. Through Malachi, I should say. 
Secondly, Jesus and other New Testament authors never quoted from them. That's huge. That is huge. Um, Jesus and you know Paul and the other apostles who are writing the bulk of the New Testament are often referring to other Old Testament texts from Genesis to Malachi, but never from these works here. Thirdly, they do not carry the same weight of truth as the rest of the scriptures. Another way of saying this would be the quality of writing is just not on the same par. It's not on the same par as with the rest of Scripture. It's substandard literature, if you will, compared to the Old Testament and even the New Testament. Fourthly, and largely, theological inconsistency. This is where we get ideas like purgatory, ideas like praying to saints, and the like, that are really found nowhere else in Scripture at all. Okay? So that's that. Any questions on pseudepigrapha, which is just fun to say. I can't say that intertestamentary word, but that one I can. Oh, here's Qumran. There they are. Those those caves they are throwing rocks in. Uh, here's what the urns really look like, about how tall they are. Isn't that cool? This is in Jerusalem. This is... Um, uh, a special museum to the Dead Sea Scrolls in Jerusalem. And that's really, the if you think about it, it's, it's the top of an urn. Is, uh, that's the nature of the top of the, the museum. And you go in there, and notice you guys, basically you have a Torah scroll spindle sticking out the top uh, for this main element. Isn't that cool? And on the outside of this here, that is... That's the book of Isaiah. They took it. Remember I told you, it's going to be a permanent witness. And there it is in Jerusalem, a, per, a permanent witness. What God says is what, that's the way it is. There it is. Goes, so you can walk around this whole thing. By the way, this whole thing here, <laughs> the whole museum is designed in such a way if there's a nuclear war, that huge plunger into the floor. The other kiosk flipped down into the floor. Incredible. They're not kidding. It's God's word. That's how they see it. Isn't that cool? Here's a close-up. That's fabulous. I can get you as close as I could. <laughs> okay. I've got a friend of mine. Notice this is not a pointed text. There's no points here. So it's just... It's just the Hebrew. I've got a friend of mine who's uh, such a, a Hebrew scholar. He can take that. He can read it. And it just blows my mind. He's, he's just brilliant. Really something. All right. New Testament canon. Here we go. We've got just enough time. What are the criteria? How do we determine whether or not a book gets in or not? It's the New Testament. Four criteria. First of all, authorship. Do we have proximity to Jesus somehow? Somebody who's an eyewitness to the life of Christ. Second criteria is also authorship with regard to proximity to an apostle. Do we have someone who's got connections with one of the apostles to some degree or some respect? Thirdly, we have early church acceptance. Fourthly, we've got the consideration of theological consistency. 
Those are the four major criteria in determining the New Testament text. So now the question is, okay, let's play the game. Let's figure it out. So, um, Matthew. Why does Matthew get in? Which criteria? Proximity to Jesus. Why? He's one of the 12, right? One of the 12 disciples. He was there. Eyewitness. Mark, a.k.a. John Mark, right? That's his full name, John Mark. There's so many Johns flying around. I'm very thankful that somebody decided to call him Mark's Gospel Mark. <laughs> you don't need another Gospel of John. So who's Mark? What's, what criteria would you use? Okay, it's not proximity to Jesus because he's not one of the, he's Mark, John Mark is not one of the apostles. But he's got proximity to apostles, so it's number two. And who's the apostle he's got proximity to? Try again. Peter. We believe that Mark's gospel contains the writings, uh, if you will, of Peter's sermons in Rome. Okay? Thirdly, we have the book of Luke, which also includes the book of Acts. This is a two-volume set. Luke, we believe, wrote Luke and the book of Acts. And so what criteria works here? Answer is two, because he has proximity to who? Paul the Apostle. He, he was hanging out with Paul. So Paul was a sent one by Jesus himself. And so he gets in by criteria with the Apostle Paul. Now, by the way, it's interesting to think about for a moment. You've got three. These are known as the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. We'll talk about John in a second. John is not a synoptic. It's really a sermon. But with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, one of these had to be written first. It's believed, uh, many scholars believe Mark was written first. The reason being is about 97% of Mark shows up in the Gospel of Matthew verbatim. In other words, when Matthew's writing, he's got a copy of Mark's Gospel in front of him. Matthew then inserts five major discourses in his text. And so here's something fun. If Matthew is trying to reach Jews predominantly, why would he happen to insert five major discourses from Jesus in his text? What would he be trying to accomplish? How does that somehow relate to the Old Testament? Ah, the, see, if you're trying to reach Jews... You've got to demonstrate that Jesus is a bigger and better Moses. Ah, five discourses. Okay, so then Luke has about 57% of Mark. So apparently Luke also has access to Mark's gospel. Luke, who's a physician, has probably the most detailed gospel account. It's one of the longest. And uh, 
and he gives you other factoids and information that you know you just wouldn't expect. And then you've got John, which again is not a synoptic gospel, but why does John get in? Number one, proximity to Jesus. He is one of the 12, right? So that's not a problem. Now, here's something fun to play with. And I don't know. I, I'm, this is a speculation on my part, but just have fun with it for a second. There's an account in the Gospels that has a discussion about Jesus walking on the water. And in one of the accounts, Peter gets out of the boat, right? Starts sinking. But it only shows up in which gospel? Peter's sinking, getting out of the boat. Actually, only one gospel says that he gets out of the boat. And only one talks about him sinking in terms of getting out of the boat. Who, who ratted Peter out of these four guys? Matthew. Who's Mark's hero? John Mark. He's writing the sermons of who? Peter. So is he going to write out? Is he going to rat out Peter? Probably not, right? Luke wasn't there, so he doesn't say anything about Jesus walking the water. He doesn't say anything about it. John doesn't suit his purpose. He's not. He's not. He doesn't want to communicate to you to believe in Peter. He wants you to believe in Jesus. That's what he's about. So Matthew rats Pete out. Just have fun with that. It was free, no charge. All right, so after Acts, we come to the book of Romans, which takes us all the way to Philemon, right? These are the Pauline epistles, right? And how does this get in? Why does Paul get in? Guys, it's one. It's one. He had a personal encounter with Christ. He tells you that several times. You know, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of God. It wasn't my idea. I was out killing Christians. I had other plans. But he encountered me as if, you know, as an apostle, born too late. He, he came to me last. So he had proximity, sent by Jesus himself to preach the gospel. Wow. Personal encounter. All right? So from there, we get to Hebrews, right? So let's skip Hebrews. Thank you. Good. Um, What's after Hebrews? James? Why does James get in? Pardon? Proximity to Jesus. Why? He's the brother of Christ. Oh. That's, that's pretty tight, right? Uh, who else do we have after James? Oh, come on, Bible buffs. Who's next? No, Timothy is with Paul, sorry. Peter? Okay, we'll go with Peter. First, second, Pete, right? Why does Peter get in? He's apostolic. He's, he's one of the 12. Okay, so that's good. Who else? Who's after Peter, what do we got? Who? John. First, second, third John. We already talked about John. So, by the way, we got first, second, third John. 
And what else? Revelation. That's all John. We've already established that. And then that leaves us uh, with one more little book. What is it? Jude. And uh, how does Jude get in? Proximity to Jesus because he's also a brother of Christ. Oh, okay. So, Hebrews. We don't know who wrote this. Rats. So, we can't use one and two. We don't know who wrote it. I have an idea of Paulus. No, I don't know who wrote it, but I think it's Apollos. We don't know, though. There's a lot of speculation. People even said Mary wrote it. And I'm like, really? I don't think so. <laughs> if anybody wrote this, it had to be somebody who was an Old Testament genius. He had to be an Old Testament guru. And the only guy described that way in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, is the guy by the name of Apollos. I wasn't there. I don't know. But that's my guess. I can't wait to get to heaven and go, was it you? Did you write it? Three and four is correct. Three and four. Why? Because the book of Hebrews has early church acceptance, along with like the book of Galatians. Those were one of some of the earliest texts written. And then uh, theological consistency. Oh my goodness, off the charts. It's a, it's a fantastic piece. It brings the Old and New Testament together in a way that nothing, nothing else in the New Testament does. Now, look at this, guys. Look at all the ones. A couple twos. Do you understand? We've got eyewitness approximation to Christ. This is huge. I don't know about you, but man, we've got a reliable text here. Now, on top of that, I promised that I was going to freak you out with some evidence. Here is my Greek New Testament. And if you happen to have a Greek New Testament, if it's a good one, in the front matter, it'll have a section entitled this. It'll say, are you ready? The Greek Manuscript Evidence. Oh, good. All right. Papyri number one is in Philadelphia. Papyri number two is in Florence. Papyri number three is in Vienna. Papyri number four is in Paris. Papyri number five is in London. Papyri number six is in Strasbourg. Papyri uh, eight is in Berlin. Ten is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Papyri 11 is in Leningrad. Papyri 13 is in London and Florence. Papyri 15 is in Cairo. Papyri 16 in Cairo, London, Oxford, Allentown, Pansa Allentown Pennsylvania. That's, um, uh, that's Penn State, probably. Uh, Glasgow, Urbana, Illinois. That's uh, Illinois. University of Illinois, uh, Newton Center, Massachusetts, Berlin, Dallas, Cambridge, Kent, Vienna, Florence, Ann Arbor, Michigan, has two papyries, has 37, 38. You can go to these places and look at these texts. Chester, Pennsylvania, Heidelberg, Vienna, Dublin, oh, there's your Irish ones. Dublin, Chester, Beatty, and Vienna has papyri 45, and Dublin, Chester, Beatty, uh, oh, and Ar Ann, Ar Ann Arbor, Michigan, have papyries of papyri 46. And uh, the list goes on for page after page after page after page after page after page. Did I mention that there's some evidence out there? Yeah. You, which mean, you know what that means? 
What, what that means is for the text to have been tampered, you'd have to collect all the copies all over the world at the same time and change them all at once. Not only can that not happen, <laughs> it's impossible. You know what I'm saying? That's huge. Now, on top of it, as, as I open up this, uh, I open up to um, Book of Romans uh, here, chapter 8, verse 15 or so. And here's the text portion. At the bottom, uh, there's a bar, and this is called the apparatus. In the apparatus, it lists the papyri numbers and all the unseal other copies that you could go examine on the planet to verify that this is what the text actually said. From, from, that's on this page. Ladies and gentlemen, the Greek New Testament is the most well-documented text of antiquity on the planet. No holds bar. Um, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Greek. They're, they're Greek version, you know, they're Greek texts. We only have a couple handfuls, you know, maximum 12, 15 copies of those. Nobody's, nobody argues the authenticity of that. And here we've got buckets, you know, boatloads, if you will, of extent copies of the New Testament. And people go, I don't think, I think it's messed up. I'm like, you haven't done your homework, man. This is powerful. This is huge. Okay? So, how reliable is our Bible? It's incredibly reliable. It's our life. Like I said, there's a lot of speculation out there, and some say it follows, some say others, you know. And again, the problem, here's what I love about the honesty of, you know, the integrity of our text. When we do something, we admit it. That's awesome. A couple places in the New Testament, very few in the Old Testament because it's so well documented historically, but in the New Testament, we've got uh, a couple passages like um, the end of the book of Mark or John chapter the first part of chapter 8 of John. They're known as spurious texts. Why? Because the oldest texts we have don't have what's there. And so if you're reading your Bible, you'll notice there'll be a little note in, in your footnote saying this portion of the text in the earliest manuscripts, we don't have the evidence for it. I love that we're honest with people about what data we have. And by the way, I'm a student of world religion. My... my my doctorate I'm working on right now um, has to do with cultural anthropology and world religion and, and um, intercultural ministry. And I've read <laughs> all the, a bunch of other texts from all different religions. And when you read their texts, they're all trying to nuance you to try to get you to believe crazy things. When you read the Bible, it's not written that way. It's not trying to persuade, other than like the Gospel of John, trying to persuade you that Jesus is is God, and that he's the Messiah. But for the most part, it's not written in such a, an inflammatory, fanciful way to try to get you to believe crazy things. It's not a manipulative text. It's historical narrative or poetry or prophecy. And, and it's just such a different style of literature compared to anything else that I've seen. 
the judge I find remarkable. It's just a totally different caliber. <laughs> the canon of the New Testament was listed in 367 A.D. by Athanasius, and the canon was confirmed in 397 at the Council of Carthage. So the Greek New Testament is the most well-documented text of antiquity beyond all comparison, as I mentioned. So here's your little memory scripture. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's your Old Testament, right? But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It would be a great text to, to memorize. Any last questions before we wrap it up with prayer? Yeah. Yes, namely by the Jews. That again, by the end of, uh, by the time we get to 400, 300 uh, BC, the, the Jews are already quite content with Genesis through Malachi. Well, you have to back up even, you know, a little bit further because what, what we're really referring to is the apostolic tradition by way of how, how uh, were the apostles in Jesus handling the Old Testament text. They're the ones, if you will, that put it on the map, right, because they're quoting from it. Uh, and so that's what, for us as Christians, gives us the weight of authority you know, in terms of the Old Testament text. So... So, quite frankly, when Paul, <coughs> excuse me, when Paul's preaching the gospel, how much access to the New Testament does he have? Zero. He has nothing. All he has is the Old Testament to proclaim the gospel with, right? Which is pretty phenomenal. I mean, think about that. All he has is his experience with Jesus and the Old Testament, and that's sufficient for him to stop killing Christians to start saving them. That's pretty massive. Yeah. No, most for, for our translations now, the more modern ones. Okay, so let's back up. The King James <coughs> Version, the reason there's an error in the King James Version in verse 1, there's actually others, um, is because the King James Version comes, by, comes to us by way of uh, Hebrew to the Greek translation, Septuagint, to the Latin Vulgate, which is the Catholic Church, if you will, you know, there's a Tyndale in there, and then you've got the, the, the King James Version, okay? Which means it's, it's really based pr predominantly off the Latin Vulgate. Where you find the air is in the Septuagint, where it makes heavens, in this case, singular. Latin Vulgate continues that. King James Version goes with it. For our translations, we've got more access now to the Greek and Hebrew originals, or not originals, but the old ancient copies of those originals, that we can go back to and go, no, 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 it's in the dual, it's plural. Uh, and so we need, so with, uh, like with the advent of the New American Standard Bible, or the American Standard, and then the NAS, 
uh, and then the NIV and then the ESV that we're now using now, you've got that correction now from, from then on out, from the, around the 50s on in terms of scholarship. But so you can see where the error was made. Back in, you know, the original King James, 1611, right? The revision, was, by the way, the King James Version that people are holding to is really not the original. So if you really want to call them on something, say, well, how come you're not reading the 1611 one, which you probably can't because it's really Shakespearean. It's really hard to read. Uh, so, but the 1800s is when that revision took place. So real quick, and then we'll, we'll let you go. So there's three major ways that you can look at a translation uh, in terms of how the Bible is translated into English that we have access to. Um, first of all, you have a word-for-word word translation. Okay. Secondly, you could have what's known as an idea-equivalent translation where an idea from the Greek and the Hebrew is presented and that idea is then translated into English. Then you have what would be known as a, a paraphrase, right? So those are the three levels. So let's back go this way. So like uh, the, the, living, the living Bible, or some people call it the living perversion. The living version. Um, it, it's a paraphrase. I mean, it's a Reader's Digest version of, of the Bible. So be careful with that because uh, there's a lot of nuancing going on. The NIV is here. It's an idea equivalent. It's a good translation, uh, but it's an idea equivalent. It's not a word-for-word -word translation. So be aware of that. That's why I don't use it. Um, um, again, I'm not saying someone couldn't be helped by it. It's just I'd, I want to get to the... I want to get to God's Word. And so before I came back to the States... Uh, the church plant that I pastored, along with pastoring overseas, I used the New American Standard. I'm an old NAS guy. I love the NAS. What I love about the NAS is in the NAS, whenever there's a word that's not in the Hebrew or Greek and there's an English word taking its place to give more meaning, it's in italics, so you know precisely when something's missing. And what's been added to bring meaning, if you will, in an English context. The ESV also is a word-for-word -word translation, but it doesn't have that little gift <laughs> in terms of that uh, issue, which I wish it did. Um, but the ESV is a word-for-word -word translation from Greek and Hebrew, uh, and is a very you know popular, uh, easy to get access to text. The problem with NAS it was just getting harder and harder to get to find it. And so I wanted to use a Bible that it would be word for word and people could get access to it. Yeah. Yeah, the Lockman Foundation uh, had it locked down. And though there was a revision with the NAS, there is an NASU that get, got rid of the Old Testament, uh, these and thous. There were a few these and thous in the Old Testament yet. Yeah. Yeah, right. It wasn't any wasn't a major revision. So anyway, that was a, a little free tutorial on uh, No, okay, lastly, and then we're really going to close. So in terms of level of reading, um, you know, the Living Bible that's like junior high level, right? NIV is probably high school. Um, NAS ESV really is probably collegiate reading. Um, <laughs> nowadays the King James version it's it's grad school. <laughs> you, you I mean that's it's, it's upper English, and there's a lot of words that are just in the language, uh, the sentence structure is just it's a, it's a little beyond us anymore. So anyway, that's how you might unpack that.
The reason I know a little bit about this stuff is I used to work for Zonovan Family Bookstore, and I was in charge of the Bible department. So let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for uh, the joy of studying your word. And, and uh, Lord, it's just uh, so good to spend time with you and to spend time in your word. And considering all that, you've, all that you've said to us and this incredible gift to us, your word to us in printed form. How many people have died over the years trying to get it to us? And yet you've preserved it for us by your grace. And Lord, it's so well evidenced by way of incredible findings that strengthen our hearts and our minds like the Dead Sea Scroll find. Lord, thank you for hiding your word in, literally in the cleft of the rock that we might have a strong assurance about what you've said. So Lord, thank you. Thank you that you really have given us a witness that stands the test of time, as you said would be the case with what Isaiah wrote. <laughs> and now on a huge spindle in the middle of Jerusalem. Lord, you're awesome. Lord, thank you for your truth. Lord, help us to not just read it or, or hear it, but Lord, help us to be about it. Help us to obey, to be submitted to what you said because your word is truth and it's powerful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for our time together. We pray all this through your son's wonderful and awesome name. Amen. Have a fantastic evening. Thanks for running a little long tonight.